Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Good evening. Welcome to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, Don Bowden. Bowden got his start like a lot of kids did, woodshedding guitar in his bedroom for hours on end and playing in local bands. But Bowden had much bigger plans. After a stint producing bands such as Kill Hannah and American Jet Set in Chicago, Bowden packed up and moved to Los Angeles with the goal of getting his music on the big screen, and in this he has succeeded. In addition to his acclaimed film and television scoring work, Bowden has continued to release independent instrumental albums. His most recent is Versus Mad Max, which is an industrial rock album inspired by the Mad Max trilogy. Welcome to Independence Day, Don. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's wonderful to see you. Yeah, it's good to see it's you. It's a beautiful day in Pasadena, pleasant uh, temperatures. We're both natives of the Midwest. We both came here for similar reasons. And yes. Are, do you, are you still happy with living in California? Uh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like a Midwesterner that's been transplanted, or do you feel like you've been naturalized? <clears throat> no, I think, uh, I think about two years ago I had um, sandals on, and I was drinking tequila, and I knew that I was a Californian. Yeah. Do you do you still put your like keep your windows open at night? Like I've noticed a lot of Californians like they kind of switch from heat to AC. It's a tricky balance. I uh, I'm over on the west side now, so oh, I got a nice cool, ocean yeah. breeze. And so it's cooler. yeah, cooler. So you've you know I've known you for a long time, so it's really cool to get this opportunity to to like check up on what you're doing and share that with our legion of fans out there in Radio Land. So you know we've got we're streaming live on the internet. So if you're no matter where you are in the world right now. You could be in Chile listening to Independence Day if you so desired. So, uh, you know, but also, you know, we're, we're on the radio here, the, the regular the transmission through the air here mm-hmm. in Pasadena, the local area. So the probably, an- analog waves? The analog waves. Yes. And it, I'm not sure that it makes it all the way to the west side, but maybe, maybe something. <laughs> dare to dream, right? So, I mean, so, so you, you feel like a Californian rather than like a transplanted man. Or do you, how often do you get home? Um, well, I try to visit my parents every couple years. They still yeah. live in the Midwest. Um, but I've never been back to Chicago since I left, uh, eight, nine years, uh, wow. 11 years ago. That's pretty, uh, that's a long time. Cause you were there, what, five years? Uh, five and a half. Five and a half yeah. years. I, I, I miss Chicago, but only from May 1st until about Halloween. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, people tend to die on the other ends of the calendar. Yeah, from yeah. either from cold or heat. So, yeah, the the extremes. I never was too terribly keen on that. So, you you came out here. What was the first thing you know? Because you'd been doing music for a while, and had had you done scoring? Because I know you did some in school, but had, had you done scoring? In Chicago, and then kind of transplanted it here. How did, well, how did how did you make the transition? I guess the um, at the time I was producing a lot of albums, and uh, I had, since I was a probably thirteen or fourteen, writing music for film or television was always a passion, um, and I'd produced a lot of albums. You'd mentioned Kill Hannah as well as uh, some other albums for some players in. Um, Ray Charles band, uh, Billy Stritch, who plays with Liza Minnelli, and um, I'd kind of gotten a group of musicians that were releasing albums that I knew really well that were my friends, yeah. and uh, my my natural instinct was to do a fake soundtrack album, and from that, that kind of helped launch uh, one of the singles that Kill Hannah got on the airwaves uh, at the time, and... Um, 
that was when I kind of kind of re-realized that that was my passion from long ago. It's still what I wanted to do. Yeah. I was very interested in making all kinds of different music rather than playing in a band and trying to fit a niche or create, you know, uh, a brand yeah. or a it, sound. It's a much bigger palette when you're writing for film. You know, you can draw from from anything. I mean, I guess some people maybe are focused and they do kind of their thing. Uh, I mean, like Daniel Lanois, I think. You know, he, he has, a, pre, he has a, a large palette, but somehow it always winds up sounding like Daniel Lanois, whereas some people's scores, um, you know, it could be anybody writing that score. And, and a lot of musicians, a lot of, you know, rock musicians, Trevor Rabin, I know, mm-hmm. the guitar player from Yes, yes now he, that's his main thing. It has been for years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but then you were doing this in Chicago, and what, was, what made you decide you know, I mean, obviously we've, we've, we've touched upon the weather angle, but yeah. what made you decide to come to L.A.? I mean, I, mean, well, I guess the industry's here or? Uh, it, it was actually, it was the weather. I shoveled snow out of my parking space and I had nine feet of snow and I'd shoveled snow every day that week. Um, and I just kind of thought, you know what? I've always wanted to try living on the West Coast. Yeah. And I've been here a while. I've been successful with my business. Um the bubble had burst with the economy, and I was yeah. seeing changes quickly in producing independent albums for independent labels, yeah. um, which is what my primary business was at the time. Uh, and I thought, this is a great time to just move and not worry about trying to struggle. I'll move. I'll see what my opportunities could be here because yeah. a bigger bigger pond. Yeah, a uh, whole new pond. Yes, and did you have contacts that kind of made it a soft landing? No, I actually, I didn't know I did at the time. And it wasn't until a couple of years afterwards that I started to run into some people that, uh, you know, we had gone to school with. Yeah. Um, and at the time I had one friend from Chicago who had been in a band that had gotten signed and they were living out here. And uh, I l- slept on his couch for a couple of weeks and found a, you know, yeah. Low rent apartment in Hollywood, like I think everyone does until they realize you don't want to live in Hollywood. Hollywood, for all of you out there who don't <laughs> live in Los Angeles, is not what you think it is. Like I always use the uh, the example from like Spencer's or Kaleidoscope at the mall, where there was those stores at the mall that would sell those like James Dean posters and Marilyn Monroe posters, and they had the, you know the like it was a romanticized version of what people perceive to be Hollywood who have never been to Hollywood. And then when you really go to Hollywood and you know, you're up to your waist in, I don't know, beer bottles and cigarette butts and needles and God only knows what else. And, uh, yeah, superheroes and super, on the streets. Yeah, superheroes yes. on the streets. Um, and then Shriners from Nebraska. And crazy people. Yeah. Tourists. Tourists uh, uh, up the wazoo. Uh, it's a much different situation because they don't, like, in, they don't make that many movies in Hollywood. Except if they're going to... Uh, um, yeah, there's that one studio. The premiere. If they're going to a premiere in a movie, yeah. then they're probably going to and, uh, the, well, the Chinese uh, theater. Is Jimmy Kimmel still do his thing out of the El Capitan right there? Uh, on, uh, I don't know if he still does. I have no idea. But I know. Well, it's, but there are theaters down there, and they mm-hmm. do like the Oscars down there. Yes, but, of course. But they import the celebrities from the West Side and from the Hollywood Hills from when the they Hills. do that. Yes. So it's a much different experience. So... Um, Let's play some music first. I want okay. to give people a taste of what you're about so that they have uh, 
something to think about, something to chew on while we talk about these things. We'll come back after this, and we'll talk more about you know how you got started with film scoring in general, like the genesis of that, and, and what happened when you got to Los Angeles, and we'll kind of circle around from there. So tell me, this is the track a little longer, but it's, on, it's something that's unreleased, right? Yes. Tell me a little bit about this. Uh, about... A year and a half ago, I realized I had written a number of songs for independent films when the the uh, budgets, they just couldn't license, you know, nine Rolling Stones songs or whatever. Or one. Yeah, one Rolling Stones <laughs> song. Um, and so I realized I'd written a lot of songs that were 34 seconds to 50 seconds long because that's the only – that's right. as long as it needed to be. That's as much as they'll pay for anyway. Yes, exactly. Um and I kind of had gone through them, and, and and one thing that that I found key in uh, composing is to always be recycling my work. Uh, and I had all these songs that were, you know, snippets, just you know, not even they're infants of songs. Yeah. Um, and I thought, you know what? Maybe I'll write. Maybe I'll explore some of these and see what happens. And what I found out is that I had uh, like twenty some songs that I'd, I had fleshed out, written out, um, and I was like, you know, I haven't done a song, I haven't sung, and I haven't done an album in a long time, and, you know, 12 years. It's and a muscle. Yes, yes, and uh, so this was the this was one of the first songs that I finished for the album that I'll probably try to release in have the next couple the, months. Have you titled the record yet? Yes, it's going to be called This One Will Leave a Mark. Ah, yes. okay, cool. So this is from the yet-to-be-released This One Will Leave a Mark by Don Bowden. This is the track A Little Longer on Independence Day.
Don Bowden, my old friend, channeling Leonard Cohen, Tom Waits, and a lot of other really cool people, man. If you're going to steal, steal from the best. So I like that track, man. That's really fantastic. And the records, it's coming out sometime. Do you have a date for that yet? Or no, somewhere no. close and it's, before uh, the end of the year, maybe? It's one of those, uh, it's one of the pa- passion projects I always okay. have. And it's more like um, when I'm free from work, I work on it. Uh-huh. And uh, sometimes it takes a little longer than I expect. So it's like Thanksgiving dinner. It's ready when it's ready. Yeah, and you'd better remember to turn on the oven early. Yeah. Do you think... Some people work really well if they set a deadline. You know, do you, or I mean, I'm, I mean, for something like this, obviously this is a passion project and your other work is maybe different. Of course, you, I'm sure you have deadlines with that. But like for something like this, I mean, does it motivate you to set a deadline or does it stress you out with all the other deadlines you're trying to meet? Um, no, I probably set two deadlines for this already that have passed. And it's just a matter of if I have yeah. paid work or a project, then, yeah. and, and like, that's what I'm going to focus and on. And we don't need anything else to beat ourselves up about. No. Not in this economy, no. man. It's, there's, and, there's too much. Yeah, yeah, and since uh, you know, since I release them independently, um, yeah. and usually, you know, the majority of the stuff I release goes to uh, my music publisher to try to yeah. get placement in TV yeah. or film. It's not like I have someone waiting for it. Uh, yeah, but you know, to see it complete and out yeah, is yeah, really yeah. the real reward. So tell us, you know, uh, this is a question you and I have talked about this in the past. Last time we hung out, we talked about this, but. You know, you talk about getting your music, you know, to music supervisors or to people who will then place it. Like, how do you even start finding these people? Where do you go? How do you come from a guy who very much like my background, growing up playing guitar to going to school, maybe being – because I harbor latent film scoring tendencies too, but I just – I haven't really pursued it – but I'm sure there's a lot of other people wondering, like, how do you how do you go from that, like the traditional guy playing in bands, doing this, to like tinkering around at home? Because computers have facilitated this a lot, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. To who do you even call? Like, where do you take it to get started? Yeah, there's no real roadmap. Um, some there's there's a few people I've met who are successful uh, because they went to school for film scoring. They got an internship with someone else who went to the same school. Hans Zimmer. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, and uh, they started picking up cues here and there as they assist. <clears throat> and then the next thing they know, they're ready to break out on their own, you know, five years later, ten years later. Um, but Yeah. And maybe someone they work with in school yes. then does a movie. Because that's one thing that they didn't tell us in college. And actually, this is a question I'm going to ask you in a second. But – in college, the one thing I wish they'd told us, you know, they t- always talked about networking and networking and like meeting people and like doing all this other stuff, but they didn't really tell us, or maybe I just didn't hear it. Maybe it's just my own bullheadedness, but it seems like, I mean, I did this naturally anyway. I mean, I kept in touch with folks from school, but they don't tell you that your opportunities, like you, when you look at the industry as this big behemoth and it's all up there above you and it's like, well, how am I going to find my way in? Is it this side, that side, you know, who am I going to? knock off or who am I going to, which door am I going to pry open? But I wish they talked a little more about as you all kind of come up together, this person gets an opportunity mm-hmm. and then it's like, oh yeah, but you know this guy or girl. And then they'll bring you in the back door with them because we're like, you know, oh yeah, I work with Don. Mm-hmm. Don's great scoring guys. Let's hire him, you know, because he's, he's, he's hungry, you know, maybe he's, he will work for cheaper. That's another thing when you're starting. So, right. or, or a lot of times, a lot of composers are just too busy to do the work they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or overload. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so what, 
I was going to get to this to the end, you know, towards the end of the interview, but I'll just ask it now. Like, what what do you wish they had told you in school, or what do you what what particular piece of advice did they give you that you think was a load of manure, or what did they not tell you you wish they had? Yeah, school is very tough. I think some people um, some people need to develop uh, their craft, um, whatever it is they're passionate about, whatever they they want to make a living. Now, do they necessarily need to go to school for that? And I think. I think maybe the answer is no for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, or, you know, I, I mean, I didn't finish college, but I worked and did the things I wanted to do and spent my time focusing yeah. on what I wanted to learn. Um, and, you know, what is it that you're, what is it that you want to learn when you're yeah. in college? And what do you want me, to get out of it? Yeah. And what I wanted to get out of it was I wanted to learn how to learn on my own. And that's, that was, there was a point I remember when I was in school where I was like, okay, I'm starting to learn on my own. I can I can go to the classes, and I'm getting some of this data, and some of it, you know, you decide what's which classes are important, yeah. and which classes you're going to spend your time on. And, and to a certain extent, because we came from a very similar program, it's almost buying access to the gear, and then the network. Yeah, you know, you hate to make sound so mercenary about it, but. Having access to a studio that, I mean, at the time, I mean, technology has changed so drastically since then. Now, with a laptop and an Mbox, you know, and a, and a synth and a whole bunch of f- music samples and whatnot, you can do everything that we like to do now. For but, the most part. Yeah, or, or, or you know, or it's, it's simpler to do. You couldn't have done that so easily back then. I mean, MIDI was around, and you could do certain things. But, you know, having a multi-track studio like that wasn't on a computer to the extent that it has been since, you know, since, has come to be since then. Um, it's just changed so drastically. Yeah, I think um, I think getting in there and experimenting. I mean, maybe it is the gear, but it's mostly like, what can I do with this? What don't? Yeah. Where's my weakness at? What? Uh, yeah. What well, is, I guess it's that, to me that's the same thing. Yeah. It's not literally just getting the gear, but getting to the point where it's like, okay, now you've got access to it, and what will you do with that? Right. You know, and then, yeah. and the people that I'm going to be doing it with. Right, and and for us, we were. Just saying, okay, we're going to live in the studio. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And that's something, you know, Don and I were both, uh, you know, recording studios generally have what they call studio managers, which is someone who, you know, and as a professional, I bet they probably still live there mm-hmm. to a certain extent. It's just they get paid a lot more than we did. <laughs> um, but I think at one point you were actually living in I, the studio. I did. I did. Uh, <laughs> I think it had to do with uh, my passion for the studio and yeah. probably a relationship gone bad. But I yeah. did live in the studio office for I, a while. I can remember going in. This we it went to the, John and I went to the same college. I can remember going in and like doing sessions and think, well, we're going to be making a racket, but we shouldn't make too much racket because we'll wake up Don. <laughs> <laughs> so let's play just a little bit of something else because uh, you do, you know, one of the things that you do, you do commercial work. You do music that then winds up in TV commercials, essentially, mm-hmm. right? So let's let's play a little bit of this verse, this first one. This is a, de- a demo you did for Gap. Yes. Who makes all those clothes that all the kids want to yeah, wear, I yeah. guess. So they've got money to throw at stuff and like this, money to throw at Don. So let's play a little bit of this and we'll, we'll start it off and then we'll kind of back off on and talk about it while we're going. So this is a Gap demo that Don did. Let's roll with this. Okay, so and this is something you did uh, in your your studio yes. at home. Yes. And how much of something like this 
is actual like live instrumentation versus virtual instrumentation or, or a sample of some kind? Yeah, um, the majority of the stuff I do is at least half sampled instruments. Okay. Uh, and it's mostly time constraints and budget constraints. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the the other aspect is, you know, as, as you are as well, you're, you, you may not be great on multiple instruments, but you have bass guitars, guitars, mandolins, yeah. accordions, flutes, anything you can pick up right. and learn how to do stuff on, you will and you can because it's going to every live instrument's going to add yeah. to what you're doing. And if and the key thing that I think you've always had is it really, you know, it's a really good set of ears. Because, you know, you don't have to know how to play a mandolin to know how a mandolin should sound. Yes, and that's uh, that's actually something I had a conversation on not too long ago was that uh, Probably the best experiences I had in college and after college was playing in pit orchestras, jazz orchestras, um, jazz bands, rock groups, uh, concert bands. Yeah. All of that live performance experience, um, it, it helps you understand the way those groups sound, how arrangements should sound, how yeah. the instruments sound. Right. And, you know, you play a good sample the wrong way it's going to sound like a bad sample yeah you you can you can creatively make that sound you can hide the fact that it's i hate to say fake but you can hide the fact that it's fake if you know how a mandolin sounds because then you can choose the ones that sound put them in the the appropriate place you know i remember uh when i was at berkeley i had a roommate who had a korg m1 one of the very first like since that everybody got like Mm -hmm. it had a little sequencer built in all the little buttons and everything and he would play with that thing incessantly and I remember there was a guitar, he, and he would let me tinker with it too, which I thought was cool. Um, but there was a little guitar patch on it. But when people, like keyboard players, play guitar patches, they play chords and blocks like a keyboard player plays. But a guitar is strummed. So it, you have to kind of do a very fast arpeggio. And I learned right away, you know, yeah, it sounds hokey, but it sounds a hell of a lot more like a guitar if you rake the chord. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Backwards the technique, or forwards doesn't matter. It's a technique in programming the samples. Exactly. Yeah, and now there's, you know... With with a lot of samples, there's so many parameters yeah. for not just velocity, but you've got expression, you've yeah. got breath, you've got yeah, you know. yeah, and the you know or multi-sampled things, mm-hmm. which is you know uh, there's something about the timbre of instruments. If you play it quietly, it's not just the same thing louder. Mm-hmm. If you play it louder, it actually the, the way the instrument sounds. Yeah, changes. the sound wave does change. Yeah, and that's a big thing. They've gotten a lot better with that, which I imagine makes your job. Easier yet more time consuming. Well, um, to get it to sound as real as you can takes a lot of yeah. programming. Yeah. Let's hear something else. This is Hilux. Yes. Which coincidentally is uh, there's a funny article. I think it's in Time Magazine. Hilux is the essentially the international version of the Toyota Tacoma that the, that Toyota sells all over the world. And for some reason, this is you know this is the the like the. I joke about this because I drive a Tacoma, mm-hmm. and I saw this article. Like they're talking about how indestructible this vehicle was, and I was like, "Oh, that's awesome! You know, that's exactly what I want—is a really reliable mm-hmm. vehicle." <laughs> but then the reason it's—it's so—the reason because it's so indestructible, like every terrorist group in Somalia, <laughs> and Afghanistan, and Iraq, and anywhere where there's essentially no society, no government. These people are driving Hiluxes because they're except indestructible. For the, uh, except for the boss. He's in a Mercedes. Yeah, the boss is in a Mercedes, the yes. guy with the bankroll, just yeah. like here. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the, the, the punchline to this whole photo gallery thing was that the last picture was a picture of a Toyota Tacoma 
that they sent over with U.S. special forces, like right when the U.S. forces went in Afghanistan in, in the fall of 01, or uh, ni- uh, yeah, 01, right after September 11th. Our first forces, when they put them on the ground, they were driving the exact same truck that I have, the same color, same model, <laughs> same like package with the wheels and everything. And I was like, whoa. That's crazy. <laughs> so this is a Hilux ad that Don did. We're going to play the short one first, and there's another version of it, too. We'll maybe compare and contrast. Yeah, they're actually bit. different, they're, they're different, different ones. Okay, different so ones. let's play this first one first. This is Don's first Hilux ad, the short one. Okay, so this sounds... You know, fairly techno, and there's it's it's almost all programming. I would bet. Is there anything? Uh, real? No, there's a lot of live guitars. Is there? Really? Okay, so guitars. Yeah. And yeah, because yeah. it's well, that's the cool thing about electric guitar, is that it you can it's so versatile. Yes. Sonically, yes. You can make a guitar sound like strings and voices and all these different things. So that's that's very versatile. And it's that's so many of us who do this kind of work uh, seems to become from the guitar realm how they got yeah, started yeah it's kind of the uh the folk instrument of the states isn't it yeah everyone can play the guitar yeah yeah piano all the pianists pianists in high school <laughs> careful uh you know they they were all they could accompany everybody because they're in every classroom and every high school and every college there's a piano and everybody can go and they can play all these different styles but ours was portable you couldn't take the piano around the campfire right, or up right. the mountain or exactly you know uh, so and then let's play the other one too, and we'll kind of. You said this is a different version. Yeah. And when well, you, it's a different, uh, different uh, spot completely. Okay. So, but when that. you when you think of this musically, so you get a commission to do something. Do you do you reverse engineer something? And by that I mean, do you have a piece of music in mind? Like they come to you and say, okay, we we need you to do a Hilux ad. Do you have a piece of music like in your hopper that you've got that then you say, oh, this would work, and then you kind of morph it, or do you do it like purely? Uh, you know, on contract. Well, start from they they need to be start. They need to start from scratch for the main reason being that um, that uh, a lot of bigger commercial work they want exclusivity. Okay. So they they want to be the own. They want this music to only be associated with their brand for X amount of years. Um, All right. And they don't want it to sound like anything else except for. Right. What they're commissioning so you'd for. Start with your blank slate. Yeah, and there's uh, that. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. You know how blank slate make music for this. You know how do you figure out what is a highlight sound like? Yes, exactly. What makes you want to? Well, because it's all commerce. What would inspire someone to buy a Hilux? Right. Essentially, right. right? Yeah. So let's hear this one. This is track. This is uh, the other Hilux thing that Don did. Okay, very different, obviously. Uh, it's different, but in many ways, uh, it's uh, very similar instrumentation. Okay. And uh, what we kind of got to was uh, I, I was lucky enough to work with the same agency on a number of Toyota things, and what we kind of found was Toyota had a sound that they wanted, uh, and this is all Toyota UK. Okay. Um, so Toyota in UK has a certain sound. It's kind of hip. It's kind of electronic. It's kind of um, almost inspired by some of the emo yeah. stuff that's going on yeah. right now in pop music. It's like the uh, the T-Mobile girl. That girl, she's from Canada. She's from Toronto. The guy, the girl with the dark hair. She's in all the T-Mobile commercials. Okay. Uh, I, ha- I live near Eagle Rock, and they have a different T-Mobile girl who looks Latino. 
uh-huh. in Eagle Rock. So it's, it's branding, essentially, yes, for yes. your audience. There's some guitar. Yeah. So they essentially, they come to you and say... We need a 30-second spot. We need a 60-second spot. Like, what do they, like, what yeah, do they, what are they um, like, when do they approach you? What kind of contract is it? They, what do they contract you to do specifically? Well, uh, specifically, they just want the music to fit for one particular um, cut. And sometimes uh, on the last one we just that you just played there, um, they gave me it, and it was three and a half minutes long. And I'm like... Okay, I'm, that's a long. That's a long ad. Yeah, I'm, that's like that's like the ad you see for the mo- like uh, for the movie commercials before a movie. Those are really long. Yeah, you know? but what happens is I realize uh, um, I realize as I'm going through it. Okay, this isn't done. This isn't the final version. This isn't edited down to the minute or thirty seconds that it's going to be. And it's uh, um, so much of the so much of the gig is communication, not only figuring out where they're at in the production uh, because the music is always going to be the last thing that has the least amount of time to be slapped on at the end uh, but it needs to sound great and it needs yeah. to have the great the perfect mood for what they're looking for now do you get do you ever get video like yes cues always. Oh, so you always do get the video okay yeah, yeah. okay so and you and they say okay hit this you know, major chord at 13 and a half seconds. Or Very rarely. Yeah. Um, unless you're working on a film. Okay. Uh, with the commercial stuff, uh, you know, it needs to not, the music needs to not stand out, but yeah. it needs to have a feel of a certain thing. Yeah. Uh, it needs to not, uh, not, not bring itself to the front. Mm-hmm. It needs to integrate and weave itself into the back behind the image, uh-huh. behind the message. Okay. And this is kind of an inside baseball question, but, you know, you do so much of your work. I forget. Are you a Pro Tools guy? Are you a Logic guy? What, uh, I use your, both. Logic use both. and Pro Tools. Yeah. Okay. So do you, with with so much of these instruments being virtual, you know, you don't even really, I guess you need a, uh, like a controller board. Mm-hmm. But how much would you say you've got invested in samples libraries or sounds mm. or things like that i mean or even a ballpark figure or yeah. are you at liberty to even say no at least 10 grand if not more yeah because like a set i've never actually purchased something like this like a set of orchestral strings mm-hmm. you know like how specific does it get nowadays you just buy like the orchestra for 200 bucks or what, what well the real trick to get away with most of the stuff because 90 percent of what you hear in film and tv is virtual uh, so little, so little of the budgets are being put into actually getting, you know, an eighty-piece orchestra. Um, some composers are adamant, and they find their ways to stretch their budgets. Tom Petty can afford an orchestra, but not well, Tom, yes, Tom Petty doesn't exactly. do a whole lot of scoring. Yeah. Um, so what? Uh, what the trick with a lot of sample libraries is? I don't have one string library. I have five. Okay. And I blend different things. Oh, that's you know, violins yeah. from one, uh, second violins from another, violas from another, and you start to get them together and find which ones work together. Um, and and then if you can, which I always try to do if I'm doing strings, is always have solo players play over the top. Like an actual player. Real players. Yeah, that's a, a, that's a really, really good tool or trick or piece of advice. I, yes. I found that myself. Yes. Anytime I've used virtual instruments, you know, you can you can even multi-track a couple tracks, you know, have them play through yeah. a violin one part, a violin two part. And I've also found if you're going to do that, you know, I did a whole album once, this whole like 22-piece string arrangement that we had written out uh, with 
two players. Okay. One violin player and one cello, cello player. player. Yeah. But then we had three violin parts, like two mm-hmm. second violin parts, like a viola type part, and then a cello part. But then we had the cello player also do kind of a bass part too. Um, and you know, it, it just took a long time. Mm-hmm. But we figured out right away that you you have to do more than two. Yeah. That's the number. It's the magic number. If you get three, they start to balance out. If it's two, you, your ear can pick them out. Mm-hmm. Again, this is very inside baseball stuff to scoring. Yeah. We live in L.A. Maybe there's some there's, – I'm sure there's film scorers out there somewhere. Um, so let's listen to something else. Now, we, we've kind of talked a little bit about film. Um, this is film stuff? We're uh, that's, uh, that's music. Um, I have a music publisher that uh, licenses music primarily to um, trailers, movie trailers, okay. movie trailers for – in Which, the in the theaters, uh-huh. on on DVDs, uh, movie trailers for TV promos, and then movie trailers for selling the DVDs, all of which uh-huh. are different. It's almost bridging the gap between commercial work and actual film scoring. Yes. So yes, that's a good place to start. So let's listen to a little bit of this. This is a track Don did called Beyond Suspense. And tell us what this is from exactly. Uh, well, I, I wrote it uh, um, to add to my publisher's library. And then um, about a year and a half, two years later, I found out that it was licensed for um, some of the in- Inception promos. You might have heard of it yes. out there in Radio Land. <laughs> so some people went to see that movie. I enjoyed that movie actually quite a bit. Yeah, I did too. Um, although we're getting to, I swear we're getting to a point in the world, speaking of trailers, where uh, movie trailers are actually better than the movies themselves now, because <laughs> they, they they trim all the fat off. Yeah. What was that alien well, the, invasion movie that just came out? Uh, alien, uh, uh, Battle Los Angeles. Right. You know, I like the trailer got me all jazzed up to see this movie, and then I got a free pass to go see it from somebody from my other gig that I do, and it was. It wasn't what you were It was were abysmal. Hoping. Yeah, it's almost like a, a subtractive creation, which is kind of how I think of producing like yeah. you, you write music then you produce it so it sounds good and with samples like we were talking yeah. about the trick is do you know what the instrument sounds like how do i take away the things in the sample how do i pull those back or uh, hide them yeah it's almost like sculpting you know with uh when you're a sculptor you take away yes what you don't want there mm-hmm. rather than you know as some great sculptor I should know this. They just said, I just take away everything that doesn't belong there. Yes, yes. You know, I start with a big rock, mm-hmm. and then I, I take away. So this is Beyond Suspense, which is something that got into the Inception trailer. Don Bowden on Independence Day. And I can see why this would wind up in the Inception trailer because we had Hans Zimmer on the other show I work on and talk. Mm-hmm. We talked about these horns and the Edith, Edith Piaf song. Do you know that whole story about how he took this old Edith Piaf song that's actually featured in the movie and then used it as a motif? And then essentially, uh, he didn't just detune the part because that would have been like Nick, a really slow sample. He detuned it like uh, mathematically, but then scored it to what it would be like okay. if it had been detuned. Mm-hmm. So he's a brilliant. I was very impressed with what he had done. Yeah, he's he's really that. he's continues to make some pretty amazing decisions with the way he's scoring. Yeah. So now with something like this, you know, you get contracted and they just give you a flat fee. Yes. Right. Um, so. But then you know, as it gets licensed, yeah, you're paid for the licensing. 
And then as it gets played, you're paid for the royalties. Sounds good. Are you ASCAP? Yes. Yeah. ASCAP? Mm-hmm. Very nice. Uh, a little bit more. Let's get, let's hear a little bit more. This is from a, a Bobby Fischer movie. What was the title of this film? Uh, Bobby Fischer Live. It was uh, about the chess champion. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this was, uh, this was I, uh, usually if I'm doing an independent film, um, I'll write a number of themes and uh, really try to explore uh, character themes, ideas, and... Um, Try to find out the try to try to make the essence of some of the characters in some of the themes, and this was the third theme I'd written that didn't get a lot of use um, when we finally did the film, uh, but it was always my favorite theme. Uh huh. There's some strings. You know, and again, you know, excellent work on the arranging arranging of the strings. You know, if you've ever picked up a cello, you mean you've got, or ever, you know, worked with, like you said, your pit band experience, you know, orchestral mm-hmm. experience, you know, um, how you play an instrument plays into this so, mm-hmm. you know, so importantly, um, you know, where crescendos are, decrescendos are, string raking noises, all these little things that make it sound real, because that's the whole goal. You know, in the 80s, they wanted stuff to sound fake, it seems, but we've, we've transcended that, it seems like to me. Yeah, actually, on uh, on this particular track, um, you recommended the cello player. Did I really? Yes. <laughs> Shirley? Yes, it was Shirley. Oh, she's yeah. great. Yeah. And again, you know, just, just cello over the sampled strings kind of fuses it together. Yeah. And end credit, that's like the cool... You know, I've always, that's, uh, what's his name? Uh, Elliot Smith. Mm-hmm. You know, that was his first big break. Now, he wasn't a film scoring guy, um, but it, that was his first big break yes. was um, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's Goodwill uh, Hunting. Good Hunting. Yes. Like, nobody knew who he was until that, that came out, yeah. and then everybody loved him. And then, I'm not sure if he did any actual scoring, but he certainly he, could. His music was very... He had a lot of movie, a lot of music uh, commissioned. But yeah. I don't know if it was so much scored. It was a soundtrack. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, technology plays such a big part in what you do. You know, do you, do you find it to be, I mean, you, you make such good music with it. So maybe I've oh, answered my you. own question. But do you, do you find it to be alienating ever? Like when you, you're in your room, because you, so much of what you do must be solitary. You're kind of in your studio. Yes. And do you find... The technology, this is almost like the Radiohead question. Mm-hmm. You embrace it and kind of get into what it is and make it part of what you do, or do you get to a point? Because when I, even with Pro Tools, I've been working for, because I work primarily with actual musicians and, mm-hmm. and these kinds of things. Like I get to a point where even because I'm, even I'm with real musicians and Pro Tools, it's like, ah, I wish I had a tape machine. I'm tired mm-hmm. of, I'm tired of clicking, my, I'm, tired, I'm, I'm a mouse clicker. Ah. You know? Yeah. How about I, you? What, what's your thoughts on that? I, my thought is, um, I think. I think I've been pretty lucky. My uh, since I was very little, my father would build computers, so I was always playing with computers growing up. And um, it may be the certain way I think, or the programs I'm lucky enough to find. But there's a point where I don't think about the computer anymore. I don't think about the software. So when I'm working, it's just like a natural tool, a natural extension of you yeah. Know, as if you have a hammer. In your hand, you know you're just swinging 
your yeah. arm, the hammer just happens to be on the end. It's the modern version of the big score. Yes, exactly. Like ink, you know, those guys I'm sure were covered with ink. Yeah, and you think, you know, you find different tricks uh, in arranging, you know, patterns when you're writing with ink on score. And it's the same when you're writing score uh, for virtual instruments. You're still seeing, you're still thinking in some of the patterns of the arrangement, what's going to work, how things are going to go together. And you do your, when you do these kinds of scoring, do you actually ever, like, score things? Like, do you use the staff yes. to write these things out? Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, let's hear a little bit more. Uh, this is, I believe, let's do this one. This is Old Friends. Tell me about this a little bit. Uh, this is the intro from uh, a movie called The Mexican Gangster. And okay. uh, I've heard it's done well in South America. <laughs> a lot of money to be made in South America. Yes, yes. Uh, and it was a lot of fun because I got to play a lot of, uh, a lot of nylon string guitar. Uh-huh. There it is, as if as if to be cute. Yeah, and again, like I talked about diversity um, that I like about being a composer. You know, I like I don't I don't always write Latin music. I don't think about Latin music, but to be able to dabble in Latin mm-hmm. music to help create the world of the movie is just is exciting to do. Let's listen a little. So how many how many tracks is this you think? Uh, and this probably is, this seven. Is like pretty much all real guitar. It yeah. sounds like to me. There's there's like some flamenco esque tapping, mm-hmm. and then believe it or not, the tapping is samples. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Probably just as easy. Well, it's uh, it's quicker once you get a good sample. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'll make my own samples from uh, not this one in particular, but uh, especially percussive samples. Mm-hmm. Once you get a good percussive sample, you know and you like, um, it's easy to play on the yeah. keyboard. There's a project at Millican or at Millican Studio back mm-hmm. when we did a sound alike where you had to imitate a, uh, mm-hmm. something, and I remember I had to have a really low—I don't even know what instrument it would be—like a really boom kind of resonant percussive sound, and I remember taking my sampler and just hitting a tom tom, mm-hmm. and then just transposing it down, and then there was something there was a, like a shaker, like a shaker kind of thing which normally I would just play, but it was I was by myself. It was probably 3.45 in the morning. It was due the next day. And I remember finding on my little sampler board a thing where the down and the up on the keyboard made the chick, chick, chick back and forth, and it was just easy to go chick, 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 chick. As much as I wanted realism, I mean, I figured it was the same thing. I'm playing a little CD-quality sample of that same thing. You know, I'm just, I guess, fudging it a little. Right. You know, but that's very nice, well, man. Well, in the, in the end, it's uh, what does it sound like? When it comes to the yeah. speakers, uh, a lot of times I'll I'll ask uh, when I'm doing mixes, especially if I have a chance, even if it's a non-musician friend, I always say, "Hey, what what does this sound like?" And they're like, "Well, you know, I don't know anything about music." And I'm like, "Yeah, but you got two ears. Yeah. If something's going to stand out and yeah. sound odd." And I've I've for a long time felt that the uneducated listener's opinion almost value is is has more value to for something like that. Yeah, because, because they're not bringing any musical yeah. uh, lesson baggage from They the have past. no preconceived notion of what it sounded like. If it sounds like an orchestra to them. Yes. You know. Then they're like 70% of your listeners. Yeah, exactly. Most people aren't actual musicians and even the ones that are aren't super trained. They kick around with it, but they yeah. don't play it like, you know, like we have over the years. 
Um, let's play a little more. This is more film scoring work. I think this is uh, Mom, You Can't Leave. Tell me a little bit about this. Uh, this is from another film called uh, Bad Cop. Um, oh, no. This is. I think this is from a film called Fuego. It was one of the last films David Carradine was in. Oh, yeah, okay. Samples. That's a nice sample, man. That's a good-sounding piano sample. At least it is through my cans. And you were commissioned to do this, or...? Uh, it was a, yeah, it was film score for the film. Good work, man. Oh, thank you. It really sounds great. Yeah, the one thing about uh, a lot of independent film is you have so little time. Yeah, I bet. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of times I... Actually, this may be a good transition for other stuff that we're going to listen to, but there's a, a lot of times when you record stuff, and, you know, there's been a couple of film scores where I've done 90 minutes of music in uh, a week and a half. Finished, delivered. Wow. Synced and out. And some of it's been, you know, overdubbing, overdubbing strings for a day. Then the next day you mix as much as you can and then you hope for the best. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, with the with a lower budget film uh, and, and the short amount of timeline, you just got to crank it out. And that was one of the things that was key to me conditioning myself to say, can I do this? Is this something I can do? And uh, so I went about doing a demo and kind of conditioned myself. I was like, I'm going to write, you know, five minutes a day. And then by the time I was done with that, after three months, I was like, okay, now I have a good demo. Now I can probably write seven yeah. minutes a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, obviously technology facilitates this, but do you, like if you're, I mean, I guess you're pretty much always working on stuff. Yeah, you know? I always have personal projects. If How I'm far not. out are you booked? I mean, with <laughs> actually, I have nothing, no real work. Uh, that's another great part of the uh, independent composer world. You may not have anything. Uh, and then two weeks later, you'll be like, okay, now I got four projects. Yeah. So it, it requires that you have a very flexible personal schedule. And that's part of being in Los Angeles allows you to kind of do that because this is where the industry is, where a lot of the stuff goes down. Yes. You know, so do you get calls from directors? I mean, if it's an indie film, do you get calls from directors or music supervisors? The staffs aren't as large as people think they are on those films, I don't think. Yeah, they're not. You know, a lot of times it'll, um, there's been a few films where uh, I was recommended by another composer because the composer they wanted to hire was too busy. And then I meet the director I work with him, and then all of a sudden I have a relationship. I become friends with that director. He likes what I'm doing, and his next film, he just calls me. There's other times when I'll have done a film, uh, and the, uh, the editor, who is a great person to know in the film world, because he's going to be using music as he edits to right. temp tracks. Um, the editor will like my music and work with me on a film. Then he goes to work with another director, and all of a sudden... He's yeah, another introduced in, introduced me. Yes, exactly. It's another in. Uh, What's your shortest turnaround time? You think? Oh, like, it was the was week the 90, and a half, 90, 90 minutes, minutes, a week and a half. Yeah, yeah. There was very little sleep. Uh, I bet. Yeah. How do you? Oh, yeah, this is two you know, two kind of like technical questions. How do you break? Um, I'll give them to you once before I forget both of them. How do you break your patterns? If you're like me, I mean, you, your stuff sounds pretty pretty diverse. So maybe that's not an issue for you. But like. Tom Waits says that your hands are like old dogs. 
they just kind of go to the same places over and over again mm-hmm. when you're playing something. And then his his trick is to just keep playing different instruments. Like just mm. keep picking up something he has no idea what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. You know, so so what what, how, what do you do to break your well, patterns? Or I do think, you have patterns? I probably do. Uh, I tend to love minor keys and uh, drones. Um, but I think I think it just with the nature of the way that uh, the nature of the way that I, I perceive the world around me, um, I tend to have a bad memory, which is why I would never be a good studio musician. I just can't keep the chops up because I don't remember the chops. I don't remember the licks. Um, yeah. So naturally, I forget what I did, you know, two months ago, and you know, luckily I can play by ear well enough. <laughs> That I have to. It's almost like having amnesia. <laughs> well, one of my friends did call me memento for a while. Yeah. So yes, yes, it, it, it does feel like that a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, so you're constantly reinventing what it is you're doing and what it is you're thinking, and all, uh-huh. all you can rely on is your ears. Uh, and this is like below the surface. What is this exactly? Uh, this was the uh, l- the first track on my very first uh, film scoring demo okay. that I wrote all music to picture from big pictures that I liked. Then I got rid of all the picture and put it on a disc and uh, sent out six, seven hundred copies to uh-huh. every person I could think of that might know me or a friend of a friend or... The $10 bill stapled to each one. <laughs> no, I didn't go that far, but uh, I did pass out a lot of CDs uh, yeah. that first year. So a little bit more. Let's see. This is, this is another thing here we're getting into. This is Tipping Point. Tell me what this is. Uh, this is from the album you mentioned, uh, The Radioactive World. Okay, so now we're getting into your kind of one other thing that you do. Um, well, actually, we never answered the second question. Let's what backtrack this a little bit. Second, this is total inside baseball. I ask all my like guys who do, uh, my last friend, Omar, who does a lot of film scoring. Hard drives are such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, what like Are you maniacal about backing this stuff up? Yes, I have... Like I, raid arrays upon raid arrays. I don't arrays. have any raids. I don't go that far because I don't want to spend... Uh, I don't geek out on the tech end. I make sure everything works and I never upgrade again. And I always yeah. have two computers, one with the newest system, one with the oldest system. Uh-huh. Uh, and I probably have 25 terabytes of just backup drives. Just sitting Wow. Because I just bought a couple terabyte drives and, man, my... My wallet hurts, man. <laughs> I have to talk to you about what you're. Well, what, yeah, you just have to. Is. You just have to build it into the the yeah. job. I mean, it's part of your business. Yeah, yeah. It's it's essentially tape cost now, and it wasn't that big of a deal. And I, I think the big thing for me is I'm doing video now. Oh yeah. And it's like audio. You know, I, I used to think about oh yeah, I got to get a 150 gigabyte hard drive. And now mm-hmm. it's like, man, I wish I had to get a 150 gigabyte hard drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bought a terabyte drive last weekend to download a bunch of uh, video work I'd done. Mm-hmm. It's full. Well, it, yeah. I bought two because I was going to use one for other random things in my world, and then uh, another one that I knew would be like my main video drive. The first, the second one was my main video drive. One day, not even full, one afternoon, gone. Mm-hmm. Boop. Yeah, all that money gone. You know, I mean, it's not gone, but you know, it's just it's it's literally a holding tank for yeah. all this huge HD video files. Yeah, and I mean, most of the stuff I do, I don't have a, an assistant. I don't have somebody that's you know doing the backups, organizing. So for me, it's quicker for me, and uh, it makes my life easier to just say, okay, part of you know part of doing the job is backing everything up, never erasing anything that I work on. Yeah, uh, having you know. Hundreds of copies of different files and yeah yeah yeah. Where do you get your drives? Um, I usually you roll order up the from, fries or no. I usually order them on from Newegg.com. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've been oh. a 
I should, I should write that down. <laughs> Maybe they'll be able to help me out. Yeah, no, it's uh, they're consistently uh, a great online store. Yeah, that's the place to go for these kinds of things. So let's play a little bit more. We've got one more track here. Uh, of the, this is stuff from the like. Let's get into this now. This is one of the things that you do. We talked about the Werewolf record. Uh, mm-hmm. We mentioned it a little bit before. Um, you know, you've put out several records of just instrumental stuff, which is akin to film scoring, but they're maybe more song oriented. And you sing on these too. Um, right? Well, I haven't. I haven't sung. Well, I've only sung on one track over the whatever six or eight albums. I guess seven albums. But not counting the new one, though. No, not counting the new one. Okay. Um, more vocals on the new one, maybe? I'm sorry? Are there more vocals well, on the it's, new the one? Well, the new one is all songs, all vocals on every every song. Okay. Uh, but to the what I've been doing is uh, picking, uh, roughly picking one or two genres I really like and trying to explore uh, a timbre of, uh, of an, orca- uh, an arrangement and an orchestration of a balance of instruments that I'm excited about seeing what I can do with and then writing for that and then putting out an album of music. It's almost like an exercise. Uh, Very much so, yeah. Yeah. So let's hear this. This is the track Never Forget. Which record is this from? This is an album called Like Rabbits, and uh, it's mostly inspired by... um, by uh, impressionists, okay, Satie, Debussy, um, as well as a lot of modern jazz players like Avicii Cohen, okay. uh, Gustav Tord. You talk so sexy, Don. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Throw me more foreign language, Don. Come on, roll, roll with it. So this is well, let's play this whole track because I mean everything we've played so far has been so great. Um, we've got another just a few minutes after this. We'll when we come back from this, we'll talk. We'll kind of wrap up our discussion and we'll touch on just a couple other things after this. But this is from how long ago? Maybe four years ago. Maybe? Yes, I think four years ago. John Bowden here in the studio with us on Independence Day. That's the track Tipping Point. Tell me what that's from. Uh, that's from uh, an album I released called The Radioactive Werewolf and Other Tales from the Southwest. Uh, yeah, so this is kind of like the techno-noir uh, type of thing. I actually have a copy of that record. It's a good record. Oh, thank you. Yeah, at the time I thought of it as an experiment in uh, contemporary Western influence the way I would see it. Uh, and there was a whole storyline that my brothers and I had made up about Concept the Radioactive album. Werewolf. Yes, exactly. They're all concept albums, concept albums yeah. of some kind. Nice. But now this is another track. This is a track called Never Forget. What's the origin of this and what that's from? This is from something that came out about four years ago? Uh, it's about four years ago. I did a short film um, called Lately with the director. Uh, and what I'd found is I had 
nine minutes of music I needed to write, and I had written 45. And so after the film was done, I said, I really like this music. I'm actually going to get some musicians in and uh, record some of it and put it out. So I put out an album called Like Rabbits, uh, and it was influenced by uh, Satie, Debussy, uh, as well as some jazz like uh, Vichy Cohen and uh, Gustav Tord. And Don, <laughs> you talk so sexy, man. Thank you. <laughs> speak to me, speak to me. All right, so this is the track Never Forget, Don Bowden on Independence Day. Don Bowden on Independence Day. And that was the track Never Forget. Man, haunting. You do favor minor keys, don't you? Uh, yes, I've always liked I've got a, I've got a thing for, for triple meter. Oh, okay. I love I love songs in three. Chanties? Yeah. yeah. I love, uh, you know, modern music. Jigs. You know, so, so, jigs. Yeah. So much of, um, you know, like hip-hop is 4-4. Four, four. So mm-hmm. much like metal is, you know, like harder edge mm-hmm. stuff. Stuff that's really popular now, like that kind of that kind of aggro pop stuff. I don't even know what to even call it. So much of it, it's all in four. You know, it's not like I've got, I, I only go home and listen to waltzes, but it's just, it's just refreshing. <laughs> you, know, you can do so much more yeah. with, the, with, the, with, the, with the waltzy meter. 
Um, so I've got a few more questions to ask, stuff that I've, I've kind of I've, I wrote down before I brought you in here. Like there's so many different things. We could talk all night, yeah. you know, but then it just makes my job harder later down the road <laughs> when I have to edit all this stuff together. But um, you know, as a guy who used to perform in bands a lot, do you miss, do you miss performing live? Um, I, there's, there's things about it I do miss, but the majority of it I don't miss. Uh, you know, packing up the van. Driving four hours through the cold. Slepping. Yes, yeah. Wondering where you're going to sleep that night. Uh, yeah, it, it can be, uh, I mean, we've had this conversation, which is, uh, you know, having a band is like being married to many people. And uh, it's difficult to keep up that, uh, especially as an independent musician. You know, I have some friends that uh, work for work for big bands and they tour with, you know, uh, they have a plane or they have a bus and they're still exhausted, you know, for weeks and weeks when they return from touring. And they're all divorced. Uh, yes. That's, that's what I learned when I was on the road full time. I hadn't, I wasn't married and, but everyone who went out on the road either by that point was divorced or anyone that stayed in that because I kind of got out of it or have since gotten divorced. And it's just hard. Yeah. There's no other way to say it. It's hard on you men- mentally. It's hard on you physically. You know, even if you've got great financial gains from these sorts of things, I'm, I mean, some people love it, I guess. They just live in a van. You know, Mike Watt is a guy that comes mm-hmm. to mind. He's, as far as I know, he's lived in a van since about 1983. <laughs> right. You know, so maybe that's just his ethos and that's cool. Yeah. But for anybody else who like has other aspirations to have any kind of family life, and I don't even mean like kids, I mean a, a, a partner or your parents, or your siblings, or mm-hmm. your friends. It's really hard. Yeah, it's difficult. You know? So, and do you, I mean, do you ever get out and play these days? I mean, do you sit in with people, or like... You know, I um, I did a friend's birthday party. We had two rehearsals. We did a bunch of jazz stuff uh, two years ago. But other than that, I haven't played out for 12 years since yeah. uh, since my band, you know, yeah. played. The uh, last show we had was uh, Hard Rock Cafe in Chicago. Mm, very nice. Now, my next thing, you do things other than music as well. Mm-hmm. You're a creative guy all the way around. I mean, I've seen some of your photography. So how much of what, you know, your income these days is music versus the photography type stuff? You know, it varies year to year. Some years, um, I'd say 70% is music. Uh, some years, uh, I've I've actually gotten into a pretty pretty good uh place with a lot of my um commercial photography and and that side so um sometimes the music will only be 40 percent um it's it's always been a goal to make to make creation for a living and i i reached that reached that goal about five years ago and now i'm at a point where i'm honing it yeah uh, now it's important to create but create my own things yeah have my own time uh and there's a lot there's you know, the past three or four years, I, uh, there's a, most of the time I only work about six months a year. That's fantastic, then, man. My hat's off to you, man. Well, I mean, I, I've known you for years and, you know, uh, all of us with our creative uh, sirens out there in the water, you know, it's like we, we've we kept various people I've known, they've kept at it, they've gotten away from it, they've gotten back into it. And you've really stuck to your guns, man. I mean, it's really great. You know, I'm very happy to hear that you're doing as well as you are. Well, thank you. It sounds great. The music and the, the photography is great, too. Where can people see the photography work that you do? Um, you can uh, – I have a, a Tumblr blog 
So it's uh, donboden.tumblr.com. And Bowden, B-O-D-I-N, yes. for those of you who don't really actually know how to spell Don's name. D-O-N, traditionally, mm-hmm. spelling of Don, traditional spelling of Don. Donboden.com is your main site. But then what's the Tumblr? It's just uh, donboden.tumblr.com. Okay. So you can find that there. What was your last non-music job? Or, not, or, or photography, I should say. Like, what was your last, like, straight job? Um... You mean uh, like going to an office kind of thing? Nine to five? Something that wasn't like... Wasn't freelance? Wasn't purely like creative project? in terms of taking pictures, shooting video, making music. Mm. Like, you know, a job where you went to like work for the man, for lack of a better word. Well, uh, for lack of a better answer, um, the first three years I was... Or the first two and a half years I was in L.A., I worked as a creative director for a variety magazine. So I would go to the office... Although I was in charge of overseeing the marketing campaigns, the design, and things like that. Yeah. And uh, what made you decide to leave that? Was it just getting into the music stuff or well, were you getting more work? No, it was, uh, it was that um, it was to get into music. I'd gotten to a point where I was settled in Los Angeles. I kind of knew how to drive from point A to point B with, uh, without using the Thomas Guide, which... Hmm. Uh, this is pre-cell phones. <laughs> pre-cell and phones. Everybody, now your phone tells you where to go. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Um, and uh, I thought, okay, if I can save up enough money to live for six months uh, and take some classes at UCLA and uh, write every morning, I'd get up at five and write till nine when I had to go to work and um, see if I could put out enough music in you know three or four months that I could have a real demo. Uh, and I went back to UCLA for a semester and um, just took some conceptual like extension courses. Yes, extension courses. Took a uh, conceptual class with uh, Charles Bernstein, um, and he's written some incredible books on the creative process and film scoring, how it ties in. Got to be pretty good friends with him, uh, and after his class, uh, was very inspired. He was very supportive of. There's really no reason to go to school at this point. You've got your skills. Uh, go out and just start doing it. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's good advice. Yes. And there's, there's just two last things I want to discuss and we'll, we'll get out of here. Yes. Uh, the first of the two is what, what advice would you give someone wanting, you know, there's some kid in Des Moines and he's got a guitar and he's, he's talented, you know, mm-hmm. you're, let's just say your level of talent or some, or something similar. And, you know, he's going to go to school. He's not going to go to school. You know, it's a kind of an open-ended question. What would you tell him? Like, what's, what's good or her? What's good advice? Well, uh, where, where do you want to go to school? That might be more important. Well, I guess I don't mean just school. I just mean, it, let's take a step back just a little okay. bit. Just a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, not so specific as where would you go to school, but like w- someone wants to get into film scoring. He's in high school. What would you tell him? He comes to you and says, you know, Mr. Bowden, mm-hmm. I want to be a film scorer. You are a film scorer. Well, what do I do? You know, I'd probably say the uh, the best advice is to kind of hone your craft, whether you're a pianist or whether you're a guitar player. Um, you have to spend that time, like, getting some chops, uh, understanding your instruments. Um, it's hard to write music unless you know music, play in groups, see lots of music, go be open to every kind of style, every experience you can. You know, there's times when I'm in San Francisco, there's always the guy with the the, uh, tin pan 
pots and pans drums. Five-gallon buckets. Five-gallon buckets in the pots and pans, yeah. And I always stop. I always listen to hear what that sounds like, to hear, you know, what his rhythms are, where he's what he's pulling out. Um, and then try to uh, try to look for where the opportunities are. Try to try to be proactive. Uh, try to find out whether staying in Des Moines, Iowa, is really going to be able. How, how many film scoring composers live in your town? If there's none, then there's a good chance you can't do it there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but yeah, maybe you can move back if you get big enough. You know, you can kind of you pull a Neil Young. Yeah. You know, he came, not a scoring guy, but he came to L.A. with the goal of, like, getting, this is printed in 1960, whatever. <laughs> it's changed a lot since then. But, you know, his goal was to, like, get signed and get the hell out of L.A. And then he, he got his, you know, Buffalo Springfield thing and then got his own notoriety. And then he bought property in the, what used to be the middle of nowhere and up by the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And now, he, you know, back when that property was cheap and now he's got this giant ranch yeah. the size of a air force base so i there. guess what you're really saying if uh if you'd like to get into film scoring maybe look into uh property investing in property <laughs> instead yeah well that's that's the alan all the way to go about yes. it like if you'd like to get into film scoring don't go into film scoring <laughs> yes if there's anything exactly. else that you think you can do yeah, yeah. do that instead <laughs> uh you know looking for being involved with filmmakers i mean that's the only way being involved with other composers and musicians is great um Film, the filmmakers, those are the people you need to become friends with. Yeah. One last thing. Uh, I try to cater the, the uh, end of the interview music every week to a specific artist, and I ask them a couple questions. You know, mm-hmm. what, what, music, uh, what music did you listen to growing up? Or what, you know, what do you like that you, people might think is embarrassing? And I'm always curious to see what every person mm-hmm. writes back. And you really only gave me one. Like, most people give me like a few to choose from, but you gave me one. <laughs> and that's cool. Well, that's so, because the list was so long. Yeah. <laughs> tell me, uh, you know, we're, we're almost done here. Tell, mm-hmm. me, tell me what you like so much about Lionel Richie. Um, his music, it just, uh, just always has resonated with me. And I think there's a, um, there's a certain romantic nature that I've always had. Uh, I like love songs. I like romantic comedies. Um, but with Lionel Richie, I've always felt that no matter what he was singing about, in whether it was uh, love or partying, uh, no matter how um, creative his energy was, he always found a way to. He's always found a way to express it in a masculine way in his lyrics. I guess so. Yeah. That always resonated with me. Man, it's I got one a, of my guilty pleasures. Yeah. Yes, I got a big kick out of looking it up on YouTube and seeing the video for all <laughs> night long, which I don't think I've seen since that. Like that came out. Yeah. You know, I really, I really miss those leg warmers, but uh, luckily, I think they're back in style right yeah, now. Yeah, the '80s are back, man. Yes. I live right by a high school. I see kids walking. Well, the skinny jeans, obviously, mm-hmm. but I see the kids walking by with their polo shirts, with their collars flipped mm-hmm. up, and the and the big like, what was the band? Uh, Frankie goes to Hollywood with the like. Yeah. 500 point font <laughs> it says relax, <laughs> it says relax on your shirt. it's all come full circle man yes but don i i can't thank you enough man thank you for coming oh, out spending so time much. to talk with us it was great to speak with you um you know i'm again i'm i'm so happy to hear how well you're doing um it, it, you know to hear that you work at something you love whether it's film scoring uh photography and then you get time to travel on top yes, of that, you yes. know, time to go be a human, which is something people forget. Well, I think it's extremely important part of the creative process. Like, yeah. uh, you know, you have to, you have to, what, 
I don't know what the, the you, metaphor you till you have the to, soil you have and to live plant to, the seed. Yeah, and You have to live to make good art. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, Don. So, live big. Yeah, live big. Thanks, yes. Don. Best, that oh. may be the best advice of all. Thank you, Don. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, and also, you can learn about anything that has anything to do with Independence Day at joearmstrong.com slash ID. If you are a musician or you know an artist that might be good to be on our show, it can also be a music business person, film scoring person, anything that has anything to do with the music business, please send them our way joearmstrong.com slash ID. You can follow us on Twitter at In-Depth Day. Also, our Facebook handle, facebook.com slash In-Depth Day. That's I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y, for those of you who can't spell on your own. And next week on Independence Day, we have Nick Babetsky of Plaid Elephant Management. He's going to stop by to talk to us about the music that goes behind the music in the new millennium. Thanks again to Don Bowden, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley and Wayne Topinski, and to Valentino Rivera and engineer Jesse Lopez from Lancer Radio. For Independence Day, I'm Joe Armstrong. Be good to one another. Raise the roof and have some fun